raised us to the level of friendship. Uh, that is a very rare indeed occurrence between God and man. But let's go back to John 15 a moment, and I, I want to review some of this and continue because it has been very, very much on my mind for the last at least couple of months what it means to be truly a friend of God. And in being a friend of God, what it means for us to be friends with each other. Because the relationship should really be the same. Uh, it's on a higher level, of course, with God, between God and man who is much higher than we are. Uh, but it's on the same level between human beings. <coughs> But God is not condescending. When he says, I'll be your friend, he means, in spite of his glory, his majesty, his power, his sovereignty, and everything that he is, he is willing to be our friend and to be a true friend to us. He is not one to be a fair-weather friend. You know, on Facebook or some of these social media, uh, you get to know somebody a little bit and you friend them, I guess is the term, and uh, then it goes on for a while, and if they say things or do things that you don't like, then you can unfriend them. So you can be in and out of those social relationships uh, on the internet uh, pretty easily, but God makes it clear that nothing can separate us from Him. I'm not going back to Romans 8, but He says, we can't be separated from His love that if he befriends us, we're friended. And he's not going to, in some willy-nilly nature, unfriend us because we make some mistake, even between us and him and our relationship. Because before he entered into a friendship with us, he already knew that we would make mistakes, social improprieties, if you will or say things, or have attitudes that we should not have, and sometimes break the rules of friendship. He went into it already knowing that. So we do not have to fear anything from the standpoint of him not loving us and wanting to be our friend. The only thing that stands in our way is ourselves. That's the only thing that stands in the way of being friends with God and friends with each other as well, is ourselves and our attitudes that we might have. But anyway, let's review this just a little bit here in, in John 15 before I go on. This is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. So he calls on us to have the same kind of attitude in our relationships, that he had toward us. Then he explains that. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, he was giving his last sermon, if you will, last talk, last instruction to his disciples before he went out later that night, surrendered to the Romans, was tortured all night, and killed. Why? Because of his friendship with us. 
He had never sinned. He had no reason to need to die, except our sins were there, and the penalty of sin is death, and we were going to die unless he died for us. He who was worth more than all of us put together. So he volunteered to die for you and me. Greater love has no one than that. It's explained, I think, by Paul that very rarely will someone die for someone else. And yet, on occasion, maybe, in just the right situation, someone will choose to die for someone else. But it's pretty rare. And he says, greater love has no man than this. If you give up your own life for someone else. It was very comforting for me when my wife Marla said, I would die for you. And she meant it from the heart. It made me cry. That she cared that much, that she loved that much, that she could say, I would do that. It was, uh, it was a rare moment, and I, I remember it well, and I appreciate it. But that's what Christ was saying to the disciples, and we are his disciples. So, he has laid down his life for us. And as I've explained, and I think you know before, uh, he laid down his life long before the day he died. He laid out a life of perfection, of never breaking one of God's commandments, of never sinning. Now that was not, in that sense, the ultimate sacrifice. The being willing to hang there and die was the ultimate sacrifice. But I'm telling you what, Living a sinless day, or a sinless 33 and a half years, is a pretty tall order in itself. And he was doing that to show that it can be done, that he did do it, and therefore, just by the body of evidence alone, his life was worth more than yours and mine, not just because he had been God, but because he had showed on this earth that he could live a sinless life as a human being. Wow! He laid his life down, did not sin, so that his life would be able to cover your sins and mine. And he's been doing that. You and I have had an awful lot of sins covered. (laughs) And probably will have a whole lot more covered. So that's the kind of life he had, to both live it and then to give it up. And then he says these very, very important words. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. So his friendship has strings. We have to obey him and serve him and do his word if we expect him to be our friend. There's a contingency there, always. Now he said, as he goes on down, that you're not of the world, and I command you in verse 17 that you love one another. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. And Paul says, if we're friends with the world, we're enemies of God. Same thing in a little different words. So, our true friend is the Father and the Son. Those are our true friends. And nothing can separate us from them. They've made that commitment. So, if we are to return that friendship, because friendship is a two-way street. (coughs) You might like somebody, but unless it's a mutual thing, it's not a friendship. It's just a one-sided love affair, if you will. It's got to be returned. So Christ offered it, and then he says, all right, now return it. I kept my Father's commandments. Now you keep mine. And then we're friends. We're together. He is not friends with the world. He's stating that. If they will not obey the commandments, they're not in his... They've been un, Well, they're still unfriended. Haven't been friended yet until they commit to keep the commandments. And when they do that, they become friends of God. So now, then, you have a relationship you're working on to make this the best friendship it can possibly be, to be as close to God as you can possibly be. Someone you can talk to about anything, anytime, anywhere. You've rarely had that kind of friendship between humans on the earth where you could be totally, completely open, say anything, and not be condemned, judged, stabbed in the back later, or whatever humans do. Very rare that you can have that kind of trust and confidence in a human friend. Uh, It does not exist on the same level that it can between us and God. Because he will always be true. He will always be faithful. He will never put us down. That's Satan's job. We put each other down then we're becoming a friend of Satan. We uphold each other and strengthen each other and help each other. Then we're a friend of God because that's the way he is. Satan's just the opposite. Now, even at our best, we're still a combination of those two things. Sometimes we act like the devil and sometimes we act like God. We need to get the balance moved way on over toward being like God and producing His fruits instead of the works of the flesh. We read them there in Galatians. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the long-suffering, all those things that are of the mind of God as opposed to adultery and fornication and murder and hate and envy and jealousy and all these things that are simply the works of the human mind at its best, (laughs) and at its worst. That's what those things are. Works of the flesh, and they destroy friendships. So, you're my friends if you do what I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his Lord does, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known to you. Now, he had been teaching them, And then they wrote the books of the Bible, the things that he had taught them. And everything we need for salvation is right here in the book. 
both the Old and especially in that sense the New Testament given to the apostles. So it's all here. Now, do you know it all or do I know it all? He's put it in here, but we don't yet understand it all. Even as the Apostle Paul said, we look through a glass darkly. So our, our understanding is not complete. He's given it to us. We just don't always get it. And we have to work at understanding it, getting it, and making it a part of our lives. And we all fall short of that every day of our lives. But it's a goal and it's a purpose and we have to be working on it. He tells us to grow and overcome and we'll be in his kingdom. So it's a continual process for us to live up to the kind of friendship that he desires, okay? And he tells us that our relationships with each other here are a microcosm of what our relationship with him should be. <clears throat> and therefore, you can kind of judge your progress by how you get along with your brothers and sisters here. That's how you judge your progress. Uh, because our relationships are not perfect. They're far from it. So we have to work at it to do for each other what Christ would do for us. And when you need something... You go to him, don't you? Yep, he's the one you talk to. So, we need to be able to come to the point where our relationship with each other is more like that. But we distrust. We don't believe. We've been burned. We've been misused. We've been abused. We've been mistreated. We've been talked about. We've been blah, 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 on and on. And so, we're a little hesitant with each other, aren't we? No, we're a lot hesitant. <laughs> but you've got to put your finger to the fire. You've got to try. It doesn't matter what the other person is. You've got to do what you want to do. They've got to live up to what they've got to live up to. So, our relationship with each other has to improve. It has to grow. It has to be like it is between the Father and the Son and us. And we aren't enough like Him as a reason we still have rocky roads. Uh, they'll get less rocky as we overcome. Although trials, troubles, tribulations, and tests are always going to be part of the meal as long as we're human. But we've got to be working in the right direction to become the kind of individual that Christ will judge as a friend. Now, having reviewed that and gone there, let's go back to Exodus, because there is friendship between God and man mentioned even in the Old Testament. Only twice. Just twice. Uh, you read the Old Testament and you find a history of man disobeying God from the beginning, Adam and Eve, through up until Noah. And it became so bad he wiped out nearly everybody, save eight. 
and started over. And it didn't take very long until headed back the same direction because human nature is what it is. Well, the first one that he mentions as a friend here was not actually the first one, but I want to go to it first. Let's go to Exodus 33. And there's some interesting things here in this uh, context. I'm going to kind of go through most of it, I think. The Eternal said to Moses, Depart and go up here from here, you and the people which you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto your seed will I give it. <coughs> and then he tells Moses what he's going to do. He he'd sent Moses to come here. We understand that. So it's you can drive around this area, and this is where he was coming. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, all the ites that were in the land. God said, I will drive out. Now, that's nice. If God tells you to do something, and then he says... And as a bonus, I'm going to go ahead of you and I'm going to take care of all your enemies and remove all the obstacles. Oh, wow, I'm ready to go, you know. God's going to do that. That's what he said. He said, and not only that, it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. That means great prosperity. Cows and grass and milk and bees <coughs> and pollination and all the things that make for a Wonderful land. For I will not go up in the midst of you, for you are a stiff-necked people, lest I consume you in the way. Now he says, I'll send an angel and get rid of the enemies, but I'm not going to go up with you because you're so stiff-necked and rebellious. I told them, I have this for you, and this is where I'm going to send you. Why? Because they were so wonderful? No. Because he had promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would do it because they were faithful. So he said, uh, I promised it. going to do it. So I'll drive the enemies out of the way, but I sure wish you'd repent and not be stiff-necked. You know, Moses had been living with murmuring, griping, complaining, nasty, rebellious attitudes for 40 years. That got tiresome. You know what? Have you ever been around a moaner or a complainer? Yeah, 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 nothing's good, all's bad, blah, 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 on and on and on. Life is hell and it gets worse, you know. That gets old. I don't like to be around complainers. Let's read on. I say that because of something about Moses that I want us to get. You're stiff-necked, and I'm not coming along unless I just lose my patience and blow you away. And when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned. 
And no man did put on his ornaments. They didn't feel like dressing up. They were kind of discouraged. I mean, God had said, I'll take care of the enemies. They're not going to kill you. I'll give you a land flowing with milk and honey. But, oh, would you quit being stiff-necked and rebellious? And you know what they did when he said that? They planted all four feet like a backsliding heifer trying to be led. If you worked with animals at all, you know, I like a horse or a cow or a goat that has been trained to lead. You put a halter, you put a rope around their neck, and you take off walking and they just follow along behind like it's wonderful. And then you get one that ain't been broke and put a rope or a halter on them. They plant all four feet determined they will not move one foot forward and you can choke them to the point of passing out before they'll move a foot. Either that or if they're small enough like a goat, you can just haul them along and stop once in a while so they can get a breath. (laughs) That is what a stubborn and stiff-necked animal is all about. I will not be led. I will not do what you say. I don't care if you choke me to death. I am staying right here. I once had a horse named Duchess. And she was a drama queen. Ugly little thing. Half pony and half horse and so short coupled she'd shake your gizzard to ride her. But she was nice overall. She would not get in a trailer. She knew how. She knew she was going to have to. But she wouldn't. Now, she'd lead around the corral of the yard, no problem. But you try to get her in a trailer, I don't know what had happened in her life. But she hated trailers. I was trying to load her one time. And I saw it on the reins. I had a rope on her finally and put it through the side of the trailer and jerked on as hard as I could. No way. Give her a little slack and she'd back up another step. This went on for, I don't know, roughly an hour maybe, trying to get her to get in that trailer. I don't remember what I did now. Did I get behind her with the two before? I think I may have. I don't know. And she finally said, oh, okay. And she just stepped right up in there like she did it every day. She was stubborn and stiff-necked. That's what Moses dealt with all those years. Now, I can remember that incident in Montana probably in 1983. I remember that day well. Because she was so stubborn. Moses dealt with that every day. Now that's been nearly 40 years ago that I'm bringing this story back. He dealt with it every day for 40 years. Not with one horse, but three million people. Every one of them pulling back. And when they heard, The God was so disgusted that he might consume them on the way if they stayed that way. 
Then they got all discouraged and frustrated and would even put on their ornaments and their good-looking clothes. Oh, poor us. Look what I'm offering you, and you're not willing to take it. Look what God offers us and how unwilling sometimes we are to take it and how rebellious we can get and how we can put ourselves ahead of God and make an idol of ourselves. No different than they were. It's in our nature. When they heard that, they didn't put on their ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I will come up into the midst of you in a moment and consume you. Therefore now put off your ornaments from you that I may know what to do to you. He says, take off all those things that you like to wear to make you feel beautiful and lovely and wonderful. Take them off and I want to find out what's really there. Will you be humble? Will you be meek? Will you lead? Can I lead you to the promised land? Or are you going to continue to be stubborn? So God was trying to make up his mind. <laughs> he had the power. Knock them out. Or keep them alive. The children of Israel stripped themselves of the ornaments by the Mount Horeb. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that every one which sought the eternal went out to the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. Now, this was a mobile tabernacle. And Moses said, these people don't deserve to have it in their camp. They're so stubborn. So he set it out there and said, I'll see who comes. Now, God's going to do the same thing with His people here at the end. I'm going to set the tabernacle, the temple, out in the wilderness, out in the mountains, and I'm going to see who comes. Ten percent will. That's all. Now, I think what He is going to do, as it says there in Haggai, He stirs them to come. Just those 10%? I don't think so. I think he gives the same direction, the same instruction, the same examples, the same signs and wonders to all of them. That's only fair, right? He gives every one of them the opportunity. And only 10% are stirred to come. It wouldn't be there at all to leave the other 90% out and not say, hey. So here it is, right here. <clears throat> I'll put the tabernacle over here. Now you come in or not. 90% will not. It's, <laughs> it's amazing when you get into this. Those people were no different than people today. Human nature never changes. It's always the same. Anyway, he took it out there, outside the camp. And it came to pass, when Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone to the tabernacle. 
Well, Moses says, okay, it's set up out there. I'm going there. And every man came out of his tent and stood there and watched. And it came to pass, as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Eternal talked with Moses. So the people stood at their tents and didn't come. I don't think their attitude was right yet, do you? Quite. But he came, he talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. So when they saw that pillar of fire, and the God was really there, there was somewhat of a change in attitude, and they began to pray. Now, you and I sometimes begin to pray, but do we, do we do anything about the prayer? Or do we just pray it and then go our way after it's been prayed? Uh, that happens a lot, too. Now, getting down to the part that I am here for, really. And the Eternal spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, he doesn't really call Moses a friend here, as he does one other individual in the Old Testament, but he spoke to him face to face as you would with a friend. So that implies or intimates that this was a friendship encounter, okay? He was treating him as a friend, face to face. And he turned again to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Now, you remember Joshua and Caleb were the only two of the spies that went into the land who came back and said, we can do this. God will give us the victory. The rest of the spies says, oh, those people are too big and they'll kill us all and blah, blah, blah. Now, Joshua was the one that God was going to use after he sent Moses to die to actually take them in. And he stayed in the tabernacle. Everybody else was still at their tent door praying, and Joshua went with Moses, and he stayed in the tabernacle. We need some leaders at the end time here who will stay in the tabernacle. We really do. Moses said to the Eternal, Now this is an interesting conversation. See, you say to me, Bring up this people... And you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore, I pray you, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, <clears throat> that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people." Now, he had told Moses he was going to take the people to the promised land. Moses wanted assurance. He wanted his friend here to assure him that he would be faithful, he would be true, and that he would see it through. That's the kind of friend you want. And I find it interesting that Moses felt comfortable enough in his relationship with God that he would ask for that. He could talk to him. 
Now, we've been given the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and access to the Father through the Son. This was the Son that Moses was speaking to. He was a Melchizedek of the Old Testament. The Father and the Son work together to decide what they want to do, but the Son is the one that goes out and actually does the work. Like Colossians says, without him was nothing made. He's the one that did the creating itself. And he was the one that Moses was talking to here. Is our relationship such with God that we can go on our knees before him, guided by his spirit, to talk things over with him? To ask sometimes for assurance that we may not feel. Uh, I trust you. I have a faith in you. Help my unbelief. Help my lack of faith. Because we do not have total faith, total trust, total belief in God. If we did, we would be different than we are. Right? If we had total trust in Him, we would not have decisions to make about this, that, and the other thing that we waver on. Because we know he has our best interests in mind. My son Matt and I, after his wife was almost killed in that accident, and could yet die, talked about the circumstance. Thy will be done. Now, Matt and his wife had just come out of a Jim Jones type of a relationship of 14 years with a false prophet. And I told the judge in court that that's what he was. Because he was trying to steal everything they had. And they're getting straightened out. They're keeping the Sabbath and the holy days again. And headed in the right direction. And then she nearly gets killed. And you think, how can this be? You know, they're trying to do what's right. They're improving. They're coming out of that pagan garbage they were in. They're headed in the right direction. And then wham. Why? You know what? I don't know why. But I know that if he is calling them, and Matt grew up in the church, and Amanda pretty much did as well, and then they went like a lot of our friends and acquaintances in the church did somewhere else. But they're on their way back. And then this happens. Now, what's Matt's attitude? All things work together for the best for those who love God and keep His commandments. Thy will be done is what he's praying. If you want her to live, she'll live. If you have a reason for her dying now, Help me understand and help me deal with this. And You're in charge. You're sovereign. You're God. You know, he has wisdom and understanding of the human heart and mind and our direction and everything about us that is beyond our comprehension. As I told him, he knows how many hairs are on her head. And yet he almost let her die. God has a purpose in that. 
I don't know what it is yet. But he said, I've been thinking about Job a lot. Lost his kids, lost his gold and silver, lost his cattle, lost everything but his wife, who told him to curse God and die. Thank you, sweetheart. <laughs> I mean, that's about as low as he can get. You lose everything but her, and she's grabbing at you. Just go ahead and die, Job. Those have had to be comforting, wouldn't it? Why don't you just die? But God had a reason. He had a purpose. Job had some things to learn. And he went through all of that. And when he learned and prayed for his friends who had been stabbing him from the front the whole time, he prayed for them, and he saw the difference between God and man. Job was a righteous man, but he began to be self-righteous. He began to think he was almost as good as God, I guess. And boy, did he turn, get Satan turned loose on him. And God did that on purpose. Turned the devil loose on him. Said, do anything you want but kill him. All right. And it got bad. But when he saw God for what God is, and saw himself for what he was, he repented in sackcloth and ashes, and God returned the blessings. Now, the kids that had died were not returned. Uh, cattle and camels are fairly easy to replace, but your kids are kind of tough to replace. They'd all been wiped out. But he gave them a bunch of daughters, most beautiful daughters in the land, after that, and blessed him beyond measure. And Job is listed as one of the three most righteous men in history. There, I think it's in Ezekiel. Job, Noah, and Daniel. One was added in the New Testament, which probably is a fourth of those, or a fourth part of those. John the Baptist. He said no man had been more righteous than John the Baptist. So, I think you could say those four are probably the most righteous men that have ever lived on this earth. But Job had some bitter, painful lessons. And you know what? God loved Job. Job was one of the three most righteous men that had ever lived. And at that time, one or two of Well, yeah, Noah's the only one at that time other than Job, because Daniel came later. Though God loved Job with all his heart. He loved him so much. He wasn't stiff-necked. He wasn't rebellious. He was obedient. I mean, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Satan can find fault with you for anything. For things that are there and things that are not there. He has the wildest, most vivid imagination of sin and evil that there is. And God put Job up to Satan and said, You see my servant Job? He's a righteous man. Nothing wrong with him. Mm, what a challenge. 
the accuser of the brethren was told, there is a righteous man, can you find anything wrong with him? And Satan couldn't. He couldn't find anything wrong. Now, one of the reasons he couldn't is because Satan is the most self-righteous being in the universe. And being that, he was not able to see it in Job. And God knew that. But he used Satan to get Job over his attitude. It wasn't in that sense of sin. He just didn't grasp and comprehend the difference between man and God. So after being worked over, he said, Oh, now I get it. And Satan had to tuck his tail and go away in defeat. So, I understand why Matt's looking at the example of Job. Because having his wife in the condition she's in is just about as much as can be laid on a man. It really is. When your mate lies dying or almost dying, and you feel so helpless and so frustrated and so devastated, that's the bottom. And that's where he is. And I admire him for looking at Job. God loved him. God loves me. Whatever's happened here is within his will. He passed on it and allowed it to happen. He could have stopped it. He's, he's had things that have happened to him and his family before that were stopped before they ever got started. Or been in accidents where no one was injured. And I have, and you may have as well. And I know God was there. And He prevented me from getting injured at all, I believe, in two rollovers and other awful things. I believe that. So He could have stopped this just as easily. He could have. But He didn't. But he has something in mind down the road that Matt and I don't yet understand. That's okay. We will someday. We'll know why this happened. I believe that. Because there will be some good come from it, whatever it is. Do we believe with all our hearts that God is in charge and that he is the sovereign of the entire universe? And he holds in his hands life and death, good and evil. That he can make anything happen that he wants to happen. And he can allow anything that he wants to allow. It says right there in Isaiah 45, I make peace and I create evil. What do you mean God creates evil? He's good. He's righteous. He's perfect. How does he create evil? Well, we just went over an example. Did Job and his wife think that the things that happened to Job were evil? Yeah. Who caused that? Who created it? God did. He went directly to Satan and said, got a job for you. It's a nasty job. Are you in on it? Oh, yeah, I like nasty ones. Give me that one. So he took it, and he did his best to destroy Job. 
And with God's help, it didn't happen. So God created that evil. There was an attitude in Job that needed changed, and it wasn't going to change without something pretty drastic to occur. There are things about you that are difficult to change. And sometimes things have to get pretty drastic before we change. So, that's part of it. That doesn't mean God doesn't love us and that we're not His friend. He just wants us to be a better friend. He wants us to put us through whatever it is that it takes to refine us, to mold us, to make us, to shape us into what He wants us to be, which is to be just like Him. You've done it with children, all you gray heads out here. You've had children that you wished were this way, and they were that way. Now, they were good in some ways, and they were sweet, and you loved them dearly. But man, sometimes they were a pain. I've often quoted something I heard years ago. I wouldn't take a million dollars for one of my kids, and I wouldn't give you a dollar for another one just like them. (laughs) Sounds a little harsh, I suppose. But there's a certain amount of truth to that. (laughs) And... Raising kids is difficult. And here God's trying to raise billions of them at once. And every one of them is a terrible two or whatever. It's a difficult job. But he's taken it on. And he's going to succeed. All Israel shall be saved, he said. Oh, wow. He's going to get the job done. But boy, sometimes what it takes to get us there. He said, for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God is like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, a camel perhaps can get through the eye of a needle. But, oh, look what it does to the camel. You ever tried to push something into something that didn't fit? Now, I know that they say that there was a gate there called... Um, um, the needle or the eye of the needle and a camel had to get out on their knees and it was very very difficult to get them through it but it's a metaphor one way or another whether that story is completely true or not I don't know but look what it takes to get you and I from where we are to righteousness and we have to get worked over some in the process and have been It's not that God doesn't love us. He's just trying to get us to be what we ought to be. Now, Moses wanted assurance that God would be with him in this whole thing. Consider that this is your people, and that we found grace in your sight. Verse 14, and he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. So God makes him a promise. Okay. We're going to do this, and I'll be with you. And he said to him, If your presence go not with me, carry us not up there. He says, If you're not going to go with us, don't even send us there. Now, you've promised us some wonderful things. 
But if you're not going to be with us through this whole process, then I don't want to go. In other words, the relationship had become such that Moses said, God, if you're with us, I want to go. I'm in on this project. But if you're not going to be, I don't want to go. Now, when we begin to repent and understand God's way, understand His laws and commandments, He says, okay, repent and be baptized. I will give you my spirit. And we're going to go on this journey of transforming you from a scumbag to a spirit being. And you say, I'm going to need help. Are you going to go with me on this journey or not? (laughs) If you're not going to go with me and taking me from scumbag to God, I don't want to go there. It's too rocky a road. It's too hard. Can't do it. Come with me. Be with me. Let's go. Okay. You and I made that commitment as slaves to God. We will do His will. We are working at doing His will. And isn't it wonderful that we can, when we fail and we fall short, we can go to Him and say, Help me. Be with me. Give me your spirit. Empower me. Inspire me. Strengthen me to get this done. And He's there. Try being perfect without Him. <laughs> Try being perfect with Him is tough. What does it do to the camel? But, Moses wanted to be sure God was with him. Well, they're talking as friends, eyeball to eyeball here, back and forth. Will you be with us? Are you coming? Or are you just going to send us out there by ourselves? Don't want that. So God said, no, I'll be with you. Verse 16, For wherein shall it be known here that I and your people have found grace in your sight? Now, he not only wanted his assurance, but he also wanted to know that they had the good will of God, grace or unmerited pardon, that they, as a stiff-necked people, did not deserve. Because God and Moses both knew what those Israelites were. God had dealt with it all this time, and poor Moses had dealt with it all this time. How will I know we found grace in your sight? Is it not in that you go with us? So shall we be separated, I and your people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. He says, now you're taking us somewhere that no one else is. This is a journey towards something new and different. When we are converted and baptized, we embark on a road towards something that has never been. The mystery of God is not complete. No one has yet ascended to heaven and come back to the earth. Hasn't happened yet. So it's kind of an unpaved road. Reminds me of a song. Love travels on a gravel road from way back. And it does. I don't care how much you love each other. I don't know how much you get along, how well you communicate. 
It never gets totally smooth pavement. It just isn't there. It travels on a gravel road. And so does the road to the kingdom of God. Now, once you get there, the streets are paved with gold. But in the meantime, it's four-wheel drive country, <laughs> you know. How do we know? And the Eternal said to Moses, I will do this thing also that you have spoken. Not only be with you, but show you that you have favor. For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. You're my friend. I know your name. I'm sure he had counted Moses' gray hair. And he said, I beseech you, show me your glory. Well, these words were not quite enough yet for Moses. So he said, show me your glory. Who am I talking to? I mean, we're eyeball to eyeball here, but I don't see you in glory. Let me see your glory, and then I'll know that, hey, you're on our side, you're with us. Now, had Christ been impatient, he could have taken umbrage at this and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, uh, you're kind of pushing it, Moses. But he didn't. He understood Moses' frame. Moses was one of the most righteous men who ever walked. Had his problems, stammered and stuttered a little bit here and there, and said, God, I can't do that. And God said, you will. Aaron will speak for you, but you will do this. <laughs> okay? So Moses had his difficulties, and he might have been pushing it just a little here, but Christ took it in stride and said, Yeah, Moses, I know your name. I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know what you will do. And I'm not going to get impatient with you because I do love you. And I will take care of this. Now, isn't that comforting? That even though we might push at God a little now and then, He understands. I don't want to push at God. I don't want to push Him at all. I want to do what I should do and know then that I have grace and favor in his eyes because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Because when I'm not, I get nervous. Don't you? I get nervous if I know that my attitude isn't what it ought to be. And so then I go and talk to him and say, I'm trying to straighten my attitude out here. Please, no thunder and lightning at the moment. Uh, I, I'm working on this. Help me. Well, what did Christ, how did he respond? This is beautiful. Show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the eternal before you, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is my decision, God says. I've told you I'll show mercy, but it's my decision. I'll show mercy where I want to show mercy. Okay? And you and I understand that's why we plead for it. <laughs> Have it on me, please. And he said, you cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Read about the glory of his face in Revelation 1. And you can't look at the sun 
And you can't look at Christ in His glory. So it's just you can't do that and live. Do you want to see it? <laughs> I think is the implication. You want to die? Okay, I'll show it. Oh, no. That's not what I had in mind. You can't look on my face and see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand upon a rock. You want to see something? You want assurance? Okay, I'm going to give you some. Here are the conditions. It shall come to pass, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in a crack in the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. I'm going to walk by in my glory, but you're going to be tucked back in the rocks. And as I come in view, I'm going to put my hand over your face so you can live. Now, from behind that hand, above and below, there was light shining. Because in that kind of glory, the light goes everywhere. You've seen that with something with a light behind it and the light shone around it. So he was protecting him from a view, but I'm sure it was still startlingly bright and scary. I walk by and put my hand over you while I pass by, and I will take away my hand and you shall see my backside, but my face shall not be seen. Wow. Now that was as close to giving him what he asked for as God could give him without killing him. You can't feed my face, but you can see my backside. Oh, okay. It'll probably be shining in reflected light as well. It'll be beautiful. I'll, I'll go for that. So that's what he did. Now this is kind of a dramatic scenario here, isn't it? All the back and forth and questions and then God saying, I'll go with you. I'll send an angel, but I won't go. And then I'll be with you and give you grace. And Moses keeps saying, all right, I hear you. I hear you. I'm not quite believing you yet. I've been out here wandering around with these people for 40 years. I've seen your anger. I've seen your anger turned on me because I struck the rock in my impatience. And I'm a little fearful. I'm a little timid. I've seen an awful lot. I've seen you deliver this people through the Red Sea with a wall of water on both sides. And they walked through on dry land and turned around and bitched at me. Perplexing. I want to know. Okay, have a look at my behind. <laughs> now do you believe? <laughs> There's some irony, maybe even a little humor in that. I don't know. God has a terrific sense of humor, you know. He's not always angry up there. He, he made things that are so cute, so beautiful, uh, so humorous, so fun. And he made us. So the one of our commonest reactions is smiling and laughter. He put humor in us. We've twisted it, and Satan's twisted it. But it's beautiful. I was sitting by the lake in my lounge chair the other day. 
here comes a chipmunk. He's scurrying about, looking for anything I may have dropped on the ground. And he gets fairly close. And I had a can of cashews sitting there as part of my weight loss program. And uh, so I tossed him three or four. Oh, my. Now, he somehow made the connection from my hand, which was not, I guess, in the can. He somehow made the connection, and I had a little stool there by my chair that I could set my cashews and my coffee or whatever on. And uh, next morning, here he comes, looks around, finds nothing, jumps up on the little stand right beside me, knocks the cashew can on the ground, and starts chewing on the plastic lid. This is cute. I'm sitting there having fun, watching him. It's, it's humorous. I'm smiling. You little rascal, you. But I picked up the can. I wasn't going to let him get in it. <clears throat> well, about an hour later, I dozed off to sleep. I felt something in my lap. And I opened my eyes, and he was right here. feet planted on my neck and his nose right next to mine. And I'm thinking, lice, fleas, rabies, these things, you know, go through quickly and I, I shoot him away. But boy, you talk about bold and aggressive. And I looked at the little rascal and I laughed and it, it was just fun. But you look at all those things in nature that God has made and there's, there's so much humor in the interplay with animals and birds and so on. <clears throat> God has a wonderful attitude. That's so why I, I kind of wonder here, you know, he could have showed him his elbow. But he's, okay, I'll just show you. <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. But it got the point across, whatever. Maybe it wasn't funny at all, but it just strikes me that way. That God has that kind of sense of humor. But here was a man that God had befriended and talked to as a friend. Now look back on Moses' life. You can go to Hebrews 11 and talk about how he gave up being a big dog in Pharaoh's court to going out, living in the desert, coming back and suffering with God's people and going up against Pharaoh and God delivering and then God sending manna and God dealing with these rebellious people. And Moses, other than one little fit of temper... Handled it pretty good. He really did. I don't think you and I have the kind of patience to deal with three million griping, complaining, murmuring, backstabbing people. I've had congregations of three, four, five hundred. That was plenty for me. Three million? Huh. I'm out of here. My Moses. He says, okay, God. I committed to this job. Let's get her done. And they did. And then Moses didn't get to go in because of his one bad attitude, really. God says, well, you go on up and die. Moses said, okay. Okay. I understand. I'll do that. So he went up and died. And then Joshua took him in. All right, what time is it? How did we get from there to here? That's okay. There's a lot of lessons in there. We'll just stop there then. Save something for next week. <laughs>